At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. I'm David Nutt and this is another Drug Science Podcast. Today we have the scientist and author Carl Hart, who's going to share with us some of his uh, very radical but I think extraordinarily sensible and rational views on US drug policy and the way in which it's actually done a great deal more harm than good. So, Carl, great to see you and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast. I, I think people would be really interested to know about how you came from Miami to becoming a professor at Columbia. I'd, I'd be, tell us a bit about the pathway and the struggle you had to go through and, and, and actually why you even did it. I came of age in Miami in the 1970s and early 80s. In 1984, I joined the U.S. Air Force, in part because I didn't have any other options. And during that time, crack cocaine uh, became more prevalent in various communities. I was a roughneck. I was one of those kids who would get into trouble and so forth. Uh, I wasn't on the trajectory to go to college or university. And so in the UK, I began to start to go uh, take university courses. And I began to see that I was pretty good at it. And in 1988, I got out of the military and completed my undergraduate education and began to study neuroscience. And my goal was to make a contribution to my community. And one way I thought I could do that was to figure out how drugs were producing addiction via this neurobiological mechanism. And because I had believed that if you knew enough about the brain, we could understand addiction better. Uh, you cannot understand addiction without understanding the environment and all the rest of these other contingencies, social factors that play a role. But in the 1980s, 1990s, I believed the hype. And so that's where I put my efforts into really learning how to understand what was going on. And I learned a lot about the catecholamines, dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. And at the, at the same time, the drug field was interested in the catecholamines in terms of reward. And so I had this solid neuroscience background. And I was trying to use this neuroscience background in order to understand drugs' effects. And over the years, I discovered that many people in our field who call themselves neuroscientists know jack shit about how the brain works. But they do know some of the lingo. And so we have uh, misled the public in terms of our enthusiasm about what a correlation between dopamine and reward or pleasure means. 
And we have also misled the public about what we're calling brain changes or um, events in the brain. Uh, these normal events sometimes are being interpreted as pathology. That's kind of how I got here. But it took me 30 years or so to really understand how the manipulation happened. So were there, was there a particular insight or was it a gradual uh, opening of your eyes as you realize that the simple sort of synaptic model of dopamine couldn't explain everything? It was gradual because I was learning about, uh, I don't know, fish. And I don't know if you know the, the marvelous neuron. It's this neuron that's important for the escape response in fish. And it's a really simple model. Uh, it's one neuron that controls the fish escape response. Imagine what happens when you have a billion uh, neurons. And so when I started to think about this sort of fish escape response and how complicated it is at the neurobiological level, and then trying to think about what we were saying about drugs, uh, it started to dawn on me that there's a lot more complexity than we present. Well, now, if we think about the behavioral level, there were all right, the self-administration model in laboratory animals. And so you have a drug like uh, cocaine. An animal will press a lever to receive intravenous injections of cocaine. And you can block this by giving the animal something like a dopamine antagonist. You can disrupt cocaine self-administration. That was interpreted as... Dopamine was the key variable for cocaine pleasure. Now, before you see a decrease in self-administration in that animal, you see what we call an extinction burst. So the animal really uh, begins to press the lever a lot, and then it just drops off. That's the extinction burst. Now, you take a drug like nicotine that we say dopamine is also responsible for uh, its rewarding properties, and you do the same thing, lesion dopamine or you block dopamine. You don't get an extinction burst, the animal just stops. And you, first of all, it's difficult to get an animal to self-administer nicotine. But the interpretation is the same when the behaviors are wildly different. And so those kind of things started to make me question our simplistic model that we were presenting to the public and also to the field. People like simplistic models, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, kind of one of the reasons why it's, um, uh, you know, they've uh, had such a lot of traction because, I mean, they, they can reduce things to something that's comprehensible, whereas uh, what you're saying, and I think what, what I'm saying as well, is it perhaps there are other explanations which are also comprehensible, but people don't don't want to face them because it's easier to kind of just think about the, the synapse. And of course, those are the social issues and uh, where, uh, where you get, you start to rub shoulders with politicians. Yes. And uh, let's not forget too, David, uh, there is a lot of money in that simplistic model. For example, the National Institute on Drug Abuse in the U.S. fund a lot of research that operates under that model. And a lot of powerful people, powerful laboratories, labs are based on that model. And so that's a, a variable we don't talk about enough. The issue of uh, sort of science as a business is something that we do need to be a bit more honest about because it can, 
it, it can be very, yeah, it can be in, a, in some way, you know, it's a very good career. And, and you and I have both become professors as a result of, of kind of learning the lingo and doing the research and, and giving the lectures. But it isn't necessarily, we are going down the right uh, track all the time anyway. We must be very open-minded to the, the fact that we might be part of the problem, not necessarily part of the solution. <laughs> I really like what you said about... Uh you and I both have like comfortable lives as a result of this sort of thing. And you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you reminded me and the public of that. We're not for this model and this sort of thing. I wouldn't be able to have this platform. Um, and so I was wrong for much of my career. So I want people to understand that uh, I recognize that and I'm trying to follow the evidence, and do what's right. But I was wrong for much of my career. As I say, I really first came across you with the, um, the film, The House I Live In, which uh, is, one I think, one of the most remarkable films I've ever seen. And, and it's one that I really recommend. Every time I talk to uh, any high school kids, I say, see that film, because it, it, until you've seen that, you don't really understand the enormous difficulties that many people have coming to terms with basically their, their, their environment and their upbringing and how drugs just such an easy out that it's almost inevitable that, that many people will take that because if you've got no other alternatives, <laughs> I think you've said it yourself in your writings, it's a rational thing to do <laughs> given the circumstances in which you find yourself. Absolutely. You know, in high school, I didn't say this before, but even I, I sold some drugs in high school because... Uh, it was a way to get status. It was a way to have a little money in your pocket. Uh, and it was an option that was available, whereas other options weren't available. How are your friends and your family? I mean, are they, many of them must have been uh, victims or collateral, have collateral damage from those battles because, you know, there is a disproportionate impact of the drug laws on, on, on the black community. In fact, you could almost—it almost as if the drug laws are designed to attack the black community. <laughs> you said that quite politely, just like uh, you know how we think of the British. You'd say there is a disproportionate sort of impact on the black community. In our country, we say shit. It has decimated the black community, and like you said, uh, it's clear that even if it wasn't designed to do so politicians understood that this was happening and did nothing. Uh, even people like Barack Obama uh, was tepid in his response. And, you know, like he's one of the best, pol best politicians for the community. So when he is even tepid and he also operates under this notion that drugs are bad and drugs destroyed the community, you're in trouble. But you're absolutely right. Uh, I have a son who spent time in jail because of these drug laws and I have relatives whose lives are destroyed. They're dead or from not the drugs, but the consequences of being in prison. And then what, was, what happened as a result of these laws. And so even those people don't understand the full grasp because the propaganda machine when it comes to drugs is so effective that they have gotten the very people who are the victims to buy into this notion that it wasn't the policies, it was the drugs that destroyed you. 
Yeah, that's, I think you've raised so many points just in that one um, statement. But let me just unpick a couple of them. And I think actually it's truly uh, remarkable how people are still denying <laughs> what is absolutely obvious, that the current drug policies don't work. In fact, they do clearly do more harm than good. And, and we kind of know that. You can understand perhaps some time ago there was a, a belief, well, maybe prohibition might work if we did it right. But now it's been proven wrong. What is, what is the motive for, for pursuing a policy that is so self-evidently counterproductive and destructive? Money, primarily. When you think about it in the United States, each year right now, the federal government puts into the anti-drug war effort $35 billion a year. 66% of that or more goes to law enforcement. Law enforcement has these powerful lobbies, these powerful unions, and they lobby congressmen to pass these laws because it means jobs for them. And then also, when you think about uh, the economy uh, in the U.S., like the factory workers who used to work in places like GM, the automobile workers and uh, those kind of places, they're all gone. When the factories all left, they had no economic opportunities. Bring in now the prisons. Build prisons in those neighborhoods. Now the prisons are the primary employer. And these, these uh, where the prisons are located, they're located in these rural areas in America where there's nothing, there's not much out there. And then the families of the inmate have to come out there. They have to spend the night in the hotels. They have to eat in the restaurants. They, and so you have this whole prison economy that has been built up as a result of the war on drugs uh, primarily. And those people are fighting vigorously to keep that money. And so that's why it stays. Yeah, I remember when we launched um, the, uh, the house I live in in the UK, I spoke with Eugene, uh, the, the producer, and he said he's, he thought actually the, the lobby for prisons was the most uh, regressive and powerful lobby. And he thought that was probably the, the most difficult thing to change. You might change people's understanding of drug laws. You might change, even change people's uh, concern about the, the, their failures. But this, in, this lobby to keep the prison system, the private prisons rolling, was so powerful in terms of, of Congress and, and the Senate. Absolutely. There's only one lobby that's probably been more powerful than them, and that's the tobacco company lobbies. I mean, that's a really, they are a great model to study in terms of how you get legislation that is beneficial for you. Um, and they are effective. The other point you, you made earlier on was from a, an outsider's perspective, the U.S. drug policy does seem rather racist. But do you think that's deliberate or is it accidental? No. So when we think of policies, I, I don't think policies themselves are racist. Now, I, I have to define what I mean when I say racist, because everybody uses this term in whatever way that suits them. But in this case, I simply mean uh, an action or actions that result in disproportionate, unfair or unjust treatment of a specific racial group. That's all I mean. I don't really care if it's intentional or what have you. So the enforcement of the policy certainly is racist. It's enforced in a racially discriminatory manner. That's a fact. 
Now, it certainly was not the intent of most of the people who passed these laws that it be carried out in a racist way. For example, we have this thing called the Congressional Black Caucus. These are black members of the Senate and the House in, in our government. And 17 of 21 of them voted for those first laws that punished crack cocaine so harshly and resulted into a large number of prison sentences. So they supported this law. Now, when the evidence came back showing that these laws were being enforced in a racially discriminatory manner, people changed their minds. Even the people who are the, this panel of judges who decides what the punishment for crime should be in the United States, they changed their mind too and said, hey, this is wrong. We need to modify this law. This is, it doesn't comport with science and it's being enforced in a racially discriminatory manner. These are all white members of judges and they, uh, they tried to change it. But Bill Clinton, the president at the time, along with Congress, uh, the majority of Congress, they voted to keep the law the same. So those people knew that it was having this racially deleterious effect, and they still decided to have the law be the same. So yeah, now we can say those people in that domain were racist, but we can't say that about the panel of judges or the other folks who objected. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the Drug Science Community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a Drug Science Community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all Drug Science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think perhaps just to say a little bit more about this, because I'm not sure if all the, all the people who listen will understand this peculiar decision that was made to punish crack cocaine use so much more severely than ordinary cocaine use. I guess the first time crack cocaine appeared in the U.S. sort of major mainstream media was December 1984 in the Los Angeles Times. And then it would be a year later before it appeared in the New York Times, so December 1985. So by 1986, DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, had done a survey to figure out was crack cocaine prevalent in the United States. They came back before the summer of 1986 and said, no, it's not that prevalent. This is a small issue. It's not a big deal. And then uh, they were told to go back because that wasn't the answer that the federal <laughs> government wanted. And then something happened. Uh, this college basketball player, he was one of the best players in the country. Uh, in June 1986, he died from what was termed a cocaine overdose, but they said a crack cocaine overdose. Turns out he didn't smoke crack cocaine, but it didn't matter because the public believed he had smoked crack cocaine. A week later, another prominent athlete died from what was termed a crack cocaine overdose. It was, he hadn't smoked cocaine, but it didn't matter. And so that galvanized support for strong legislation against 
crack cocaine. I mean, you had support from the black community, all of these different communities, because people thought that crack was so unpredictable and so much more dangerous than powder cocaine, it should be punished a hundred times more harshly than uh, powder cocaine. That meant that people caught with small amounts of crack cocaine were sent to jail for a mandatory minimum sentence of five years. Mandatory minimum if they were caught for trafficking. And then in 1988, the law was extended to people caught with just simple possession of the drug. And the 1988 law also said something in it that was really peculiar. It said that the United States would be drug-free by 1995. And anybody receiving federal funds, like universities like Columbia and all of these places, had to have in place policies that would help us achieve that goal. Now, that's the craziest thing that I had ever read, but it's in the law that the United States would be drug-free by 1995, and people signed on to this. And, and it, you didn't get objections from universities, you didn't get objection from our best and brightest, and, and that's the thing that just blows my mind. Well, you know, you're right, and that's one of the things I found really quite challenging, is that there aren't very many scientists that will say that those policies are wrong. And, and one of the reasons they don't is because they kind of they fear that they their funding will be withdrawn or, or their their career progression will be undermined because of the the political influence, the political investment in drugs and drug laws is so enormous. And uh, as you and I know, it, it's completely disproportionate to the actual harms that drugs do. In fact, the har- most of, most of the harms are done because of what the politicians do, not what the drugs do. When I heard that you had gotten sacked from, uh, I forget the commission there, it was heartening. Not, I mean, it made you a, a celebrity around the globe because you were the first person, really, I think, to stand up publicly and say that at this major level. It was one of the things that like helped me and other people be able to say, fuck that. We can't sit quietly. And we also knew people's lives are being negatively impacted by something that's just wrong. Absolutely. And I think that, to my mind, that's if one of the key roles of scientists is to actually try to, try to tell the truth when they finally discover it. <laughs> and uh, if you don't do that, you're, really, you know, you're, you're complicit in the problem, aren't you? Absolutely. Well, I, the first thing I did with the British government, most people don't know this, was to... Um, to work on how we could reduce the harms of ecstasy. And, and I went into that, I joined that committee, this before I actually worked for the government, it was a sort of testing ground. And I went into that believing what I was reading, what people were telling me, that it, this was a really dangerous drug. And I, after a few months, I realised, actually, this was kind of all fantasy. This was all media hysteria. And it was all designed by not, I don't know whom, but in order to try to, get people scared of this drug in order to stop use. And why did they want to stop use? Well, I don't know. Was it a moral argument? Was it the drinks industry trying to stop competition for, you know, in terms of the recreational space? We still don't really know, but it, 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 certainly once the media get their teeth into something and get a scare going, you know, it, it's very hard to shake their effort. The story is just so good. It's like, uh, why let facts get in the way of this great story? Yes, indeed. Uh, you have a new book coming out. 
which where you do something which I think is exactly right, which is that you you take a perspective on drugs from the, the concept of the the actual the, the U.S. Constitution, and the, the book is called Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Yes. Yep, that's it. Do you want to share share with the listeners about you know what what it's about and why you wrote it? Yeah, so the book, like you said, it's called Drug Use for Grownups, but the subtitle is where the real meat is. The subtitle is uh, Chasing Liberty in a Land of Fear. We know that in the United States, our country was liberated, and so we rebelled, and uh, uh, we had this thing called the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence is the founding document of the country. If you read the first sentence of the Declaration of Independence, it guarantees all of citizens by birthrights at least three rights. That's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then in the very next sentence, it says, government should be created for the sole purpose of securing those rights. And when governments fail to do that, government should be absolved, should be uh, disbanded. That's what it says. But people don't read the founding document and understand the spirit. Now, every law in the country after that are supposed to be in support of guaranteeing these rights. And so in the book, what I argue, I use myself as the sort of test case, that people use drugs in the pursuit of happiness, including me. And that is a guaranteed birthright. And so that's lo- as long as I do not interfere with others' ability to pursue their rights, as long as I don't do that, I am guaranteed these rights. And so that's the argument of the book. And I'm saying that it's the same argument that Martin Luther King made when he was arguing for civil rights for black people. It's the same rights abolitionists made when they were arguing to disband slavery, to outlaw slavery. It's the same arguments. And so I use drugs as an example of how we are violating the spirit of our founding document. We look forward to getting getting good reviews and uh, <laughs> maybe some political traction. I mean, you now ha- will have a new uh, president. You'll have a new um, group of people in office, and they've already started to sort of admit there were mistakes in the past. Regarding, you know, do you, are you are you hopeful? When it comes to politicians, I I'm never hopeful. When it comes to politicians and drugs, and so uh, we should also remember uh, Joe Biden was. Uh, instrumental and one of the main authors of that law that said that the United States would be drug-free by 1995. He was one of the main authors. Maybe he has evolved. That would be great if he did, but I really don't write books for politicians. Uh, I write books and try to speak with the public in order to provide some relief uh, from the suffering that people have endured or have encountered as a result of these laws. I want these folks to understand that you're not alone and that uh, you have somebody fighting on your behalf and you're not crazy. Uh, Politicians will follow the people. And if we convince enough people, the politicians will come along. And so I'm really trying to reach the people. Politicians, frankly, are a waste of my time. 
Yes, I guess they're, you know, they're far too much of slaves to the media. So you're right, the public, we need to get the public on board. I know you're getting support in the media now. I mean, is the, is the public debate broadening? Is it, has it begun to a little bit in England? Yeah, and you might know on November the 3rd here, our last election, Oregon voted to decriminalize all drugs. That is a welcome change, and hopefully it is one that will uh, reverberate in other states. California is now considering that. So if California decides to decriminalize, uh, other people may do the same thing. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Uh, but we have a long way to go because there is still so much ignorance around today, opioids. And when we think about opioids and we think about the corona uh, virus sort of pandemic, a lot of people are out of work. And so people will try to, they will get money however they can. There is a lot of money for opioid treatment, opioid sort of uh, projects. And so opioids will continue to be blamed for whatever ails a community, even though we know it's false, but it's a way in order to get money. And so we did, on the one hand, we see some encouraging findings at the legislative level. We now have 15 states and Washington, D.C. that has legalized marijuana for adult use. We have Oregon, which has decriminalized all drugs. That's encouraging. But we still have this, this regressive understanding and views on opioids. And we also even have progressive views now on psychedelics, while at the same time, we are besmirching opioids, um, uh, inappropriately so. And so, and in fact, some people uh, who are a part of the psychedelic movement are uh, intentionally doing so, saying, hey, take this psychedelic as opposed to having to take opioids. And so they pit drugs against each other, not understanding that that's exactly how you continue the war on drugs. That's exactly how you continue this nonsense. No, absolutely. You get the people to fight amongst themselves and that, you know, that disarms them. No, that's a classic kind of political uh, uh, policy. Absolutely. But uh, decriminalization in, in Oregon, I mean, that, that could be a game changer, couldn't it? Yeah, so one thing you have to understand about Oregon is one of the more progressive states in that it takes care of its citizens. And most of its citizens are white. And they have about a 5% black population. And so when you have those homogenous states, you get progressive policy. But when you start to have more diverse, racially diverse states, then you have the, re the regressive policies. So police can have these tactics in order to subjugate various groups. And so Oregon is encouraging, but if we look at the marijuana legalization, marijuana legalization, the states that have legalized marijuana, the vast majority of them have black populations below the national average. And of course, people may not know that the federal government is still adamant that cannabis is a, a dangerous Schedule One drug. It is still supporting the international conventions, which effectively uh, deny its access, even as a medicine, let alone recreationally. This completely sort of paradoxical relationship between what the federal government says and what the states say. I mean, how do you cope with that? And how, you know, how do you, you know, can you explain it? 
Yeah, you know, I've, I've written about it a lot. Um, at the federal level, marijuana has been legal as a medicine. Smoked marijuana since 1976. Robert Randall was the first patient admitted into this federal marijuana, uh, medical marijuana program. So he went to the Supreme Court and won the case where the federal government was required to uh, provide him with cannabis, smoke cannabis on a monthly basis. And the program enrolled, I don't know, maybe about 20 people over the years. Then George Bush, number one, stopped enrollment in the program. And so the people who have been enrolled uh, there's still a few people still enrolled in the program, but they're they're mostly dying off. But 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 it's clear the federal government knew and understood that marijuana had potential uh, medical benefits. I mean, it's even in the law since '76. And then another thing, THC, one of the main psychoactive compounds in marijuana, of course has been a legal medicine at the federal level in pill form since 1985. And it's still one of these drugs that physicians can prescribe. So it's just hypocrisy that the federal government bans marijuana for like medical purposes or what have you, and states uh, had to put it on the ballot. But there is some encouraging signs I have testified before Congress and the Democrats, as well as the Republicans, are uh, certainly seeming to send signs that they are willing to change marijuana from Schedule 1 as a medicine, Schedule 1 meaning that is banned, um, uh, to another schedule uh, to allow medical use at the federal level. That's one sort of sign that I think this will happen under this administration. And the vice president, Kamala Harris, uh, has said that she supported legalizing recreational marijuana nationwide. And so I don't know what's going to happen with Biden, but if Kamala Harris continues to be a player on the national political scene, I think we will get uh, legalized cannabis at a national level. Well, that would be really good for a number of reasons, but because I think one of the great missed opportunities in in the U.S. is that, uh, despite so many, you know, over a hundred million people have access to medical marijuana, there are, there aren't federal programs to research how it works, what its real benefits are, and and how to use it optimally because of because it's still illegal under the federal law, which seems to me just such a wasted opportunity. Yeah, when I testified before the Oversight Committee, the Congressman uh, Conley from Virginia, he used to chair of this committee, he took uh, Nora Volkoff, the director of NIDA, to task on that very point that you're, 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 you're pointing out. And he was not happy with her uh, because of this missed opportunity. And they also let her know that they were willing to give more money to her institute in order to fund research seeking beneficial health effects from marijuana. Well, that's, a, that's very promising because uh, it, typically NIDA has been searching for problems with drug use rather than benefits, <laughs> yeah, as you know. As you that's know. a nice way of saying it, yes. <laughs> 
Carl, well, look, uh, our time is up. It's been really great talking to you uh, face-to-face at last. And uh, keep up the great work. And let me remind everyone, the new book is coming out, Drug Use for Grown-Ups. And I'm sure everyone listening to this uh, podcast is a grown-up. So I I recommend the book to you. You'll enjoy it. It'll be thought-provoking. And uh, let me say thanks again to Carl for not just coming on the podcast, but also for championing as as you do so well, the uh, the cause of reason and rationality in relation to drug research and, and drug policy. Thank you for having me, man. And you uh, kind of blazed this trail. So uh, we all stand on your shoulders. So uh, I never forget that. And I try to make sure I give you props in my writings and so forth. So thank you. 